All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And uh, this morning we are continuing our series through the letter of Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 15 through 21. Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Here's what Galatians 2.15 says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified. Everyone say "justified," justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, everyone say believed, Believed. in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning, and like Roger said, we're grateful for the fact that the sun is shining. We're grateful, Lord, that uh, it's a beautiful day out. But Lord, if there's anything that we know is that we can have a beautiful, sunny day, and if we have forgotten the gospel, if we are not living in light of your truth, it really doesn't matter what the day is. And so, Lord, a lot of times, I know at least for me, I can have a circumstantial joy. I can have a circumstantial happiness. I can have a circumstantial perspective, but I thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to give us a circumstantial faith or a circumstantial grace or a circumstantial love. You, you have given us an unconditional, unwavering, unchanging love, grace, and mercy. We're grateful for that. And uh, God, I pray this morning, uh, we are told to preach the gospel. We are told to preach uh, the word in season and out of season. And I think that's true, not just of people in my role. I think it's true also of people who are walking with you. Sometimes we are in season and sometimes we are out of season. But the reality is that regardless of the season, we need the same salvation. And so, Lord, I pray right now for the people in our body who are struggling. Again, even though the sun is shining, Lord, that really has no bearing on what's going on in our lives. And so, God, I pray for the people, uh, the families in our church that are struggling right now, that are uh, just going through very difficult times. God, I pray specifically for two families. I pray for the uh, Meadows, uh, a bone family right now. I pray also for uh, the Mellon family, God. I, ri- I lift them up to you. Even though they're going through very diff- different things, uh, the reality is, is that they are going through suffering. They are going through pain. And Lord, as the shepherd of this body, my heart breaks for those families. And so, Lord, we are grateful for the fact that because of the gospel, the gospel is not just sufficient when the sun is shining, but the gospel is also sufficient when the rain is falling and when there's storms and when the winds are blowing. 
Lord, the reality is, is that we're all gonna suffer. Every single one of us is gonna suffer. In our third culture, we live in a culture that believes we can avoid suffering, but the reality is suffering is not a pause in your plan, it is a part of your plan. Every single one of us will suffer. And so for those who are suffering right now, I pray that for those who are not suffering in this moment, it says in Corinthians that the God of all comfort comforts us so that we might comfort those who are going through trials and tribulations. And so Lord, part of what being in the body is, is to take the comfort that we've received from you so that we might then share it with others when they are prone to forget it. So Lord, I pray right now for those families and I pray that they would feel your presence and your peace, your love, your mercy and your grace and your comfort. We pray for that. And Lord, as we now step into this passage, I thank you for the book of Galatians. I thank you for all the gospel fluency stories that we are hearing and how people are growing in their understanding of what the gospel is and how it applies to their lives. I pray, God, that you would continue to do that. Thank you for uh, uh, Ambrose and, and him bringing the word and connecting Philippians 3 to the book of Galatians and grateful for him and what he's done and how he brought the word last week. And so, Lord, as we continue this series, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord Jesus, we love you, we need you. We will never realize how much we need you. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us even a hint of that this morning as we look at this passage. And we ask it in your holy and precious name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Now, in this passage, Galatians 2, 15 through 21, I would argue that there are actually three lessons, uh, three principles that we can learn from it. The first lesson uh, slash principle that I believe we can learn from this passage comes directly from verses 15 and 16. And here is the lesson. The first lesson that we learn in this text is that justification is found in Christ alone. Justification is is found in Christ alone. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. Because look what Paul writes. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Everyone say, justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, most scholars would argue that this section is a continuation from the previous section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It is a continuation of the conversation and confrontation that Peter and Paul were having in Antioch. And I would argue that in these two verses, what we learn is that justification is found in Christ alone. Because here's what's happening. As Paul continues to call Peter out, as Paul is uh, uh, having this conversation and confrontation, what we see, because Paul's gonna say it, is that justification can only be found in one place, in one person, and that person is Jesus, right? Now, for those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that we spent a lot of time looking at this confrontation between Paul and Peter. So they're in Antioch, and here's essentially what's happened in Antioch. And back in Acts chapter 10, we are told that Peter receives a vision from the Lord. 
And there's a lot to be said about the vision, but essentially what the vision is teaching Peter is that now the Gentiles will be a part of God's covenant community. And so right after he gets that vision, the, the spirit sends him to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius, who's a Gentile, he comes to know the Lord and so does his whole household, it says, right? So, so ever since Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles have started to be grafted in to the vine. They have been grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. So from there, not too long after that, uh, we see that Paul and Barnabas, they go to a city, that city being Antioch. And when they get to Antioch, Antioch is the first place where a Gentile slash Christian church is started. Up to that point, all the churches were Jewish. And then now, because the gospel is being preached among the Gentiles and people are responding to that message, Antioch is the first place where Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together, where Jews and Gentiles are fellowshipping together, where Jews and Gentiles are partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And so Peter, he shows up and he sees what God is doing and he's rejoicing and he's encouraged and he's so, uh, 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 um, he's so excited about what God is doing that he jumps in, right? head first into this whole thing and he's participating in it and he's fellowshipping with the Gentiles and he's eating with them and fellowshipping with them and taking the Lord's Supper with them. But what we learned last week is that as he's doing that, we don't know if he was there for a few days, a few weeks or a few months, but he does it and he's all in until a party, a circumcision party shows up. The false teachers show up. Judaizers from Jerusalem show up. And we learned a couple weeks ago that he starts to back off and back away from the Gentile Christians, he, he starts by doing it slowly and subtly and progressively. And then finally, he cuts himself fully and totally from them because he was scared about what these false teachers would think. He was scared about what these Judaizers would think of him. And so Paul, he shows up and Paul sees this hypocritical behavior taking place. And what we talked about when we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago is that Paul could have called Peter out on a bunch of stuff. He could have said, Peter, you are not being hospitable. He could have said, Peter, you are not showing brotherly love. He could have said, Peter, you're being racist. But he doesn't say any of those things because all those things were just fruit of the root. His real problem was gospel amnesia. Peter had forgotten the gospel. Peter, and that's why Paul says to him, he says, my brother, you are not walking in line. Remember the word orthopedeo, to walk with straight feet on a narrow path. It, it, you are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, you have forgotten the gospel. And so now you are going back to the law instead of remaining in the Lord. And we talked about how he walks Peter through a four-step process. He takes him through, uh, we talked about the four R's, right? He, uh, he resists him, he rebukes him, he reminds him, he restores him. So the first thing he did, according to the text, is he resists Peter. Because it says in the text that he opposed him. Literally, he withstood him. Peter was trying to, to, to get off the path. And so Paul stood in his way to keep him from wandering off, right? First thing he did is he resisted him. Then the second thing he did is he rebuked him because he says that Peter stood condemned and not condemned in the uh, Romans 8.1 type condemned because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the word there meant that he stood, uh, he was at fault. 
He had wandered off and so he was at fault. So he not only resists him, but he also rebukes him. And then the third thing he did and does is he reminds Peter of the gospel. Can you guys hear me? Okay. I don't know what that was. He reminds Peter uh, of, of the gospel. And when he reminds Peter of the gospel, he does it in two ways. The, the first thing that he does is he approaches Peter and reminds him of the gospel by telling Peter that his practices at the hand level didn't align with the message that he preached at the head level. So that's the first way, right? He says, Peter, you are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. But then he also reminds Peter of the gospel because we said that he calls him Cephas, which is the Aramaic version of Peter. And the reason why that's important is because he could have easily called him Simon, which was the name he had prior to meeting Jesus. But then when he met Jesus, Jesus renamed him Peter. So throughout the gospels, every time he's acting dumb or in the flesh, Peter, Jesus calls him Simon. And every time he's living by faith, Jesus calls him Peter. And so Paul is reminding him of his gospel identity by calling him Peter, by calling him Cephas, right? So he reminds Peter. And the fourth thing, the fourth thing he does is he restores Peter. And we know that he restores Peter because Peter later on in his epistle, he writes about Paul. And not only does he have positive things to say, but he says that Paul's writing is scripture, right? So those are the four things he does. Resist, rebukes, reminds, restores. So with that context in mind, with that background in mind, what Paul does here in verses 15 through 21 is he actually continues his conversation with Peter. He continues. This is the, the same conversation still going, right? And I would argue that out of the four R's that we looked at, of resisting, rebuking, reminding, restoring, the one that Paul in verses 15 through 21 is double clicking on and going deeper into is the reminding one, the third step. So he, knows, he doesn't feel like he's reminded Peter of the gospel enough. So he's reminding Peter and the R that he's really leaning into is the reminder step, right? He wants Peter and everyone else who's there, because remember, this isn't just Paul and Peter. There are numerous people here. It's the Gentile Christians. It's the Jewish Christians. It's the false teachers. Everyone's here, right? This is a public event. He wants to remind everyone that the heart of the matter, the root of the issue, is the doctrine of justification. Everyone say justification. He wants Peter and everyone else around them to be reminded that what's really at stake is not just the gospel message, but the doctrine of justification. Justification that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing, we know that that is the core of his message. We know that this is the heart of his argument because he brings up the word justified three times in these two verses alone. That's important. One of the things that you have to look at when you're studying scripture is repetition. And he brings up the word justified three times in two verses. So if the word is so important that Paul feels the need to bring it up three times, what does the word justified or justification actually mean? Well, if you're taking notes, the word justified in Greek is the Greek word diakaio. And it means, essentially, it's a courtroom term. It is a word that was only used in a courtroom setting. 
And the only person that can use the word was the judge. Because literally the word uh, uh, justified, diakairo, means to declare someone righteous. It means to pass a verdict on someone and the verdict is one of righteousness. But what is righteousness, right? If, if, if justification is to be declared righteous, then what does righteous mean? Well, righteousness means to be made right with someone. Righteousness means to be set right, to meet the expectations or standards of someone, to be approved and accepted by someone. So, so get this, what Paul is saying here, this word's very important. Make sure you're locked in because we're gonna use this word a lot. Not only is it important for this message, it's important for your Christian life, okay? So, so make sure you're understanding what I'm saying. Uh, 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 justification is a legal term. It is a courtroom term. It can only be used by the judge and it means to declare someone righteous, to pass the verdict of righteousness. And if righteous means to be made right with or to meet the expectations of someone, then here's what this means. Because this is something that's always bothered me, right? Maybe you've heard this, maybe you've taught this. Someone will say justified. You know what the best definition of justified? Just as if I never sinned, right? Just as if I've never sinned. That people love that definition. The problem is, is that that's only half of what justification actually is. Because justification doesn't mean to be declared innocent. It means to be declared righteous. Those are two different things, church. Just as if I've never sinned means I'm innocent. That's only half the good news. When we are declared righteous, Jesus doesn't just pay for our debt so that we're back at zero. He pays for our debt and then imputes to us his righteousness so then we become trillionaires. So just as if I've ever sinned is only half of the definition. Because what justification means, and don't miss this, is that when you place your faith in Jesus and you are declared righteous, it's not as if you've never sinned, you are treated as if you always obeyed. That's totally different. Never sinning versus always obeying are totally different things. Jesus doesn't just take our sinfulness, he gives us his righteousness. So, so it's not like you're in death, because a lot of people use this illustration. You are on death row and you are about to die and, and, and someone came in and offered you pardon and now you're free to go. No, 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 that's only half the story. Justification is you get taken out of death row and then you go to the presidential office to get the purple heart. Dr. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled, get this, to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing, get this, the opposite sentence to condemnation. Condemnation is when, katakrino, when we get not only the sentencing, but we get death. So it's not like parole, no, 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 it's, it's condemnation is you're sentenced, you're guilty, and then you die. 
The Bible says, Romans 8, 1, that in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's already good enough news. But not only is there no condemnation, but there is full justification for those who are in Christ. There are probably many of you who've never heard this doctrine explained. And yet it is the heart of this letter in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'm going to show it to you here in a second. And here's what I love about the word justified. Not only is it in the aorist tense, past tense, so it's a completed act, right? That once I am justified in Christ, I don't have to go re-justify myself every day or every Sunday. It's past tense. But also the word justified is in the passive voice. The passive voice in Greek means that someone else is doing the action to you. In other words, you don't justify yourself. Jesus justifies you. And here's what Paul is arguing. What Paul is arguing here is that every human that's ever lived, regardless of background, regardless of class, regardless of race, ethnicity, country, generation, every human being that's ever lived at the heart level, at their core, is looking for and desires justification. Every single person is trying to justify themselves. Every person in this room, online, on earth, desires to be fully known by someone, yet fully loved by someone. The problem is, usually when people fully know us, they don't fully love us. But that is the core desire of every single person on earth. We want to be loved and approved. We want to be found acceptable in the, in before the only eyes that matter. That is the core longing of the human heart. Justification by faith is not just the heart of this letter. It's not just the heart of the New Testament. I would argue that it's the heart of the entire Old Testament as well. The entire Bible is about this doctrine. How do we know? Well, because in Job 25, Verse four, which you may not know this, but if you look at it historically, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It's not Genesis, it's Job. Job was written before Genesis. Job is being talked to by one of his friends, one of his religious, moralistic friends. And in Job 25, Bildad, one of the friends, he asked this question. And I would argue that this question is the question that every human being is asking whether they know it or not. He asks, how can a person be made right with God? That question is being asked in the first book ever written in the Bible. From beginning to end. This question has been asked since Genesis chapter 3. Once Adam and Eve were booted out of the garden, the question has become, how can a person be made right with God? That question is a question concerning justification. How can a person be justified? How can a person be forgiven, atoned for, accepted, approved of, found pleasing and worthy? How? That is the greatest and deepest question that we will all have to answer. Dr. John Stott puts it this way. He says, man's greatest need is justification. Think about that. Not food, not water, not housing, not college football. 
man's greatest need is justification or acceptance with God. He says, in comparison with this, all other human needs pale into insignificance. How can we be put right with God so that we spend time and eternity in his favor and service? The Bible says that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. And where your justification comes from on the day that you stand before God is the most important question you will ever answer. More important than who you marry, more important than where you work, more important than what your job is, more important than what neighborhood you'll live in. It is the most important question you will ever answer. And every single person in this room, whether you are a Christian or not, is seeking to answer that question. That's what we see. And here's what Paul argues then. Paul argues that not only is justification the core need of every human being, but every single person, because we need to be justified, we go looking for it and there's only two places you can go. There's only two options when it comes to where your justification comes from. Your justification either comes horizontally from the world around you or it comes vertically from the Lord above you. Let me say that again. There's only two places where justification can come from. It either comes horizontally from the world around you or it comes vertically from the Lord above you. In other words, justification is either earned by us religiously or it is given by him graciously. Only two options. So if that's true, that there are only two options, then that must mean, right? Because I, I don't know about you, but I tend to assume the best about myself. That must mean that I always choose the better option. That must mean that I choose the vertical option. I'm a Christian. How can I not choose that option? See, but the reality is, if you are sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you, maybe you think you know Jesus, and maybe as I preach, you're going to realize you don't know Jesus. If you are not a believer, your only option is the first option, to go looking for justification horizontally. You're, that's your default setting all the time. You can't change that until Jesus calls you to himself, right? But even if you are a believer, even if you have experienced the, the vertical justification that Jesus has provided for you, every morning, gospel amnesia, like we talked about last time, you're going to default back to trying to be justified by the law instead of by the Lord. Every morning you are going to wake up and your default setting will be to go out into the world and to try to find your justification in the world around you and not the Lord above you. If you don't think you're capable of that, that means you're already doing it. Remember what we said about gospel amnesia? The first symptom is you don't think you have it. That's what we see. And so we go out. So what are some of the examples of places or people that we go to in order to find justification? Well, we've been talking about over the past several weeks that every single one of us has a, a, a panel, right? We have a, a judges, like a game show, like a talent show. We all have judges in our head. And that on that panel could be you. On that panel can be your spouse. On that panel can be your kids. On that panel can be someone who died a long time ago. And we have all these people that we are seeking to get approval from, that we are seeking to be accepted by, that we are seeking to be found pleasing in their eyes. And you know what that is? It's justification. 
You are seeking to be justified. You are seeking to justify your existence by what that person thinks of you. It can be your friend group. It can be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your boss. It can be anybody. But the reality is, is that our default setting is to go looking for justification in the world around us instead of in the Lord above us. So maybe for you, it's your career. And you're convinced that, 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 that as long as I uh, uh, succeed in my career, I will be found acceptable. I will be found worthy. And so you're willing to, to, to work late hours. And, 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 you know, we talked about this in the past, but, you know, child sacrifice is this Old Testament thing, right? But I think that there are many people sacrificing their children on the altar of work and their marriages on the altar of success, career advancement. So, so, so maybe yours is career and, and it's the approval of your boss and of your coworkers. Or maybe it, it seems like it's career, but really what you want is your career gets you money and money is what justifies you. That as long as I am not poor, maybe you grew up in poverty. And so as long as I'm not poor, as long as I quote unquote make it, as long as I live in the right neighborhoods and my kids go to the right schools, I'm accepted. I'm acceptable. I am justified. It could be anything and anyone. Every single one of us is seeking to be justified. Who are you seeking justification from this morning? I promise you it's not Jesus. But I know that's not my heart. As a matter of fact, I just finished a book called Gospel Treason, and in it, the author says that the reason why we have to expose ourselves to the Word of God and to the work of God every day, the reason why we are to remind ourselves of the Bible and of the Gospel is because the Bible and the Gospel are like an IV that, that we have to keep in our vein to fight off the infection of the flesh and of sin. Just a little drop every day. It doesn't happen all at once. It's more cumulative than it is catalytic, but I need to stay connected to those things because the further I get away from those, the more tempted I will be to find my justification horizontally and not vertically. Here's the thing about me. So one of my, let me, let me, let me show you how I'm right here with you. One of my uh, areas where I try to or seek to find horizontal justification is in health. And so I am convinced that as long as I eat the right things and work out in a certain way, and, and anyone that knows me knows I take like 97 supplements, which is not healthy, I should go to counseling. But anyways, um, right before I went on vacation a couple weeks ago, I had my annual physical. And I go to the physical and uh, I was, honestly, I was a little bit anxious because I was like, look, either all these supplements have kept me healthy or they sped up some disease that I had. Like, I, I, it's over, I'm, I'm about to die. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, was, I wasn't really in a, in a really optimistic place. I go to the doctor, he runs the blood panels and he comes back, he's like, Will, you are in perfect health. Your testosterone is great. He said, you have the testosterone of a teenager. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the Lord, it's not me, it's the Lord, <laughs> right? And, I, and I'm like, just on cloud nine, right? And, and that idol of I am justified by my health, I am justified by, you know, how, how, how well I take care of my body, I'm leaning on that instead of on Jesus, man, it was sky high. So we go on vacation. And when we get on vacation, get to vacation, as I'm trying to pull myself out of the pool, I throw out my shoulder, I guess, something that's never happened in my life. And literally, I still can barely move my arm. And that was a week and a half ago, right? 
That was the first thing that humbled me. Then the second thing that humbled me is that I, got, I was born with microtia. So I was born without an ear and I had 15 major reconstructive surgeries. I can't hear on my right side. So I got to take a lot of care of this ear. I got really bad swimmer's ear. That swimmer's ear became an ear infection. So, so, so I come back from vacation, which was supposed to be a time of rest, mind you, and my whole left side is gone. <laughs> I haven't been able to sleep on my left side in a week and a half. So the Lord, what he did is he was like, hey man, your health can go like this. You have it because I gave it to you and I can take it away at any point. Do not lean on shakable things, Will. Lean on my approval of you, my acceptance of you, not your approval of you and acceptance of you, no, my approval and my acceptance and my verdict and my declaration. So, so every single one of us has to wrestle with this. Where are you? It's not maybe, it's, it's not an if, it's a, a, of where, aware. Where are you going to in this season, at this time, to find your justification? If it's not Jesus, we all need to repent and believe again. Amen? And, and, and here's the thing. If, if, if justification, get this, is to be found, is to be found acceptable, right? Or uh, 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 to be found um, righteous in the eyes of our God, your God might not be the God of the Bible. Your God might be a lowercase g God. It can be yourself, your spouse, your friends, but, but, but that's what happens when we commit idolatry. We, we seek justification from God, but it's a lowercase g God. And the only God that can justify you is the uppercase g God. And I think this is why for me, justification is so important because I believe that we don't talk about this doctrine as often as we should. Like I said, for some of you, this might be the first time you ever heard it truly defined. And if you really understand justification, this objective uh, 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 forensic legal reality has very, very personal and subjective effects. Because when I understand that I am accepted and loved and I have been found pleasing before the only eyes that matter, that changes how I approach my life. Like practically, it changes how I parent. It changes how I pastor. It changes how I handle my money. It changes how I talk to people. It changes how I pray for people because, because now I'm going into the world from a place of fullness instead of a place of emptiness. Paul argues that justification is something that we all desperately need. And that justification is not found in our behavior, but in belief. It's not found in our work, but in Christ's work. It's not found at the top of a ladder. It is found at the foot of a cross. Amen? Now, the next lesson that I would argue that we learn in this text is this. Religion is both blasphemous and purposeless. Everyone say blasphemous. Everyone say purposeless. That is the next lesson that we learn. And I would say that we learn this lesson in verses 17 through 18, and then we see it also in verse 21. Look what Paul writes. He says, but if, we, but if in our endeavor 
To be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Then in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness or right standing were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So I would argue that the second lesson, the second principle that we learn is that religion, according to Paul, is both blasphemous and purposeless. Blasphemous and purposeless. So after saying what he says in verses 15 through 16, Paul here, he, he anticipates an argument from the false teachers. Remember, the Judaizers are here. They're in, the, they're, they're in his presence. It's all happening in front of everybody, right? So he anticipates a rebuttal from them. And what commentators say is that the argument that he is uh, rebutting, that he is responding to, is actually an argument that they had been using again and again. And here's essentially what their argument was. The Judaizers were arguing, and this is how they were convincing the Galatians. They were arguing that grace and faith don't work. And they don't work because they can't make you moral. They can't make you perfect. That was the argument. In their minds, since the Christian believers was still, were still sinning and misbehaving, these Gentile believers, since they were still sinning and misbehaving, then that would mean, in their opinion, that the justification that Jesus provided wasn't enough. Because in their mind, if you're fully justified, that means you never sin again. And so that was one of the arguments that they were using. Their concern was, this is what, and this is what they actually believe, these Judaizers, that if you really believe the work is finished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then that actually leads to more sin, not less sin. I would say there's a lot of where legalism comes from too. They argued that what was needed was not grace, but guilt. What was needed was not redemption, but religion. What was needed was not a divine rescue, but human requirements. What was needed in their mind was not more love, but more law. In their minds, justification apart from the law was a very dangerous doctrine. Because they believed, here's what they taught, and it kind of makes sense if you're looking at it through the lens of religion. They taught, if God justifies bad people, then why try to be good? If you're already justified, what's the point? They were scared of the false doctrine of antinomianism, which is, if it's by grace alone, then I can go live however I want. Paul had to deal with that again and again and again. And he's dealing with it here. See, but here's what Paul argues, not only here, but also in other places in the New Testament. When you place your faith in Christ, you are moved, Jesus moves you from being in Adam to being in Christ. Your address changes. You go from being in Adam to being in Christ. You go from being under the law to being under the law of Christ. You go from the present evil age, which the, under the law of Christ is the yoke that he talks about, right? But you go from the present evil age, that's fear, to the new age to come. You go from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. But here's what Paul is trying to teach these people. Your position changes initially. Your 
practice changes progressively. In other words, when you are moved from being in Adam to being in Christ, from Sinai to Zion, from law to grace, even though your position changes immediately, your practice takes a while. Does that make sense? But, but, but the more you remind yourself of your position, the more that starts to transform your practice. The more you remind yourself of your status, the more that starts to transform your steps. The more you remind yourself of your identity, the more that changes your activity. You see, but one of the things that's really dangerous is that what these false teachers were teaching is they were essentially, sorry, confusing the order between sanctification and salvation. So, so, so let, me, let me define these for you. Salvation, let's start there. Salvation, according to the Bible, is to believe in Christ. That is the most basic definition of salvation, to believe in Christ. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. Salvation is to believe. Sanctification is to become, right? But here's what these false teachers were teaching. They were taking sanctification, which is the process of becoming like Christ, and they were putting it before salvation. So what they were saying was, if you can become like Christ in your flesh, in your uh, uh, religious fervor, if you can become like Christ, then maybe one day you'll believe in Christ. Paul says, no, no, no. It's the opposite. You believe in Christ, salvation, and the belief fuels the behavior. The salvation fuels the sanctification. But church, it is so easy for us to judge these false teachers. It is so easy to look at these guys and say, come on, man, who would ever believe that? You. You would. I would. Because I know my heart, and we're going to talk about this more next week, what started in faith, trying to perfect it in the flesh. But, but Ben, I got to tell you, every morning, again, because I'm going back to religion, gospel amnesia, trying to just myself, justify myself in the world's eyes instead of in God's eyes, because I have that in Christ. Every morning, I think that if I read my Bible and I pray, God's going to be more happy with me. God's going to bless me. I'm assuming that I'm suffering proof because I read my Bible for a month straight. And, and I know that's the case because on the days that I don't read my Bible, there's like this little fear in me that God's going to get me. <laughs> Something's going to come up. And on the weeks that I worship well throughout the week, man, I come in here and hands raised and it's all about Jesus. And on the weeks that don't go as well, I come in here head down, don't want to preach, don't want to talk to anybody. Why? Because what I'm doing is I'm confusing sanctification with salvation. That's what's happening. And that's what they were doing. And that's why it's dangerous because Paul says it's not becoming that leads to believing, it's believing that leads to becoming. Amen? Just because we live by faith doesn't mean we still don't battle with the flesh. And if you don't believe that, just read Romans 7. Because when we come to Christ, the power of sin is removed, the penalty of sin is removed, but we still, we still deal with the presence of sin. The presence. If we are not careful, church, we will nullify the grace of God. That's what he says in verse 21, nullify. To nullify something, get this, means to disregard its validity, to make it void, to set it aside. 
Or it can mean to deprive something of its power. That when I go back to religion and forget redemption, I am depriving the gospel of its power in me. Not overall, because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, but in me, I am depriving the, the gospel power when I go back to religion. And that is why religion is not a good thing. Religion is a bad thing. It's not an, even a neutral thing. It's a bad thing because religious, religion is blasphemous to the name of Jesus and it renders the work of Jesus purpose, uh, purposeless. You're saying, hey, Jesus, you said it is finished and I'm saying it is not. Religion is blasphemy, blasphemous and purposeless because it leads to self-sufficiency and it robs God of his glory. A religious person is further from God than a, re than a rebellious person. You may not know that, but someone who's religious, like someone who tries to be moral and good in whatever religion, even within Christianity, there's a lot of people who aren't Christians, but they think they are. A religious person is further away from God than a rebellious person. The elder brother was further away from the father than the younger brother. Because he wasn't one step removed, he was two steps removed. Because think about it, to be a Christian, you have to admit the bad news of sin before you can accept the good news. You have to admit the disease before you can accept the cure. A religious person doesn't think there's a disease. So they're two steps away. Remember the parable of the tax collector and the publican? Sorry, the tax collector and uh, the Pharisee? The publican and the Pharisee? The, 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 the Pharisee is closer to God. He's closer to the altar and he's, he's talking about all the things he's done. He's seeking to justify himself. The tax collector is far off because he had already admitted the sin part. And when you know you're a sinner, you go looking for a savior. But if you don't think you're a sinner, you, you're your own savior. Says that only one of them left justified. And it wasn't the Pharisee. And that's why religion is dangerous and blasphemous. And church, this is why, get this, we need to regularly, going back to the four R's, this is something that um, I didn't mention last time we were together. And I, and I really, I literally, we were getting on the plane heading down to Florida to visit my parents. And I, I got convicted about this and I didn't make this clear enough. That four-step process that we talked about two weeks ago, you might think that's something you might do once or twice in your life if you ever have to confront some pastor. No, no, no. That should be happening in your life regularly. If you are a believer and your spouse is a believer or your friend is a believer or your kids are, a, are believers and you're not reminding them of this, you are not a good friend. You are not a good spouse. You're not a good parent. Because think about this, think about this. And, and I say that with, with all the authority that I, can, that I can muster. Because think about what this means. When someone is leaving the gospel, they're going back to religion. And we just said, religion is not neutral. It is blasphemous and it is purposeless. So when you let the people around you go back to religion in their hearts and in their heads and in their hands, that is not good. That is not something to celebrate or just, oh, but it's, they're just being who they are. I remember one time, I remember one time, uh, uh, Lily was going through this, I don't know what it was. She was anxious about something. We were really, really young in our marriage. And my response was, I was thought I was being the responsible, godly husband. I was like, have you read your Bible? You probably didn't read your Bible today, huh? And she was like, what? 
who are you, the Holy Spirit? And like it blew up, right? So for about 10 years, I got scared. I'm not gonna lie, like I got gunshot. I'm like, I'm never calling her out on anything else ever again because I almost died that day, you know what I mean? I wasn't a living sacrifice. I was gonna be a dead one, right? And, uh, but here's what I realized in light of this passage. I actually didn't remind my wife of the gospel. I gave her religion. I told her, hey, if you check that religious box, God and you will be good again. And I realized that the reason why I didn't do it again was because I actually hadn't offered her redemption. I had offered her religion. But church, we have to realize that if you, if you have roommates here, you're single, you have roommates here, or, 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 or brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, spouse, kids, people in your small group, we need to remind each other of the gospel. It is unloving to not do it. If, 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 if your spouse comes home and they have forgotten the gospel and they're anxious about work, the loving thing is not to sit there and be like, well, you know, that is where your identity is found. <laughs> that sucks that your justification is found in that because no. You remind them of where their identity actually is. Same thing with your kids. How many parents, I don't know what to do with my kids. I, remind them of the gospel. Not law. Love. Not guilt. Grace. Because they struggle with gospel amnesia too. This should be happening regularly, church. I'll tell you a story to show what this looks like. Uh, a few years ago when I got here, we were in a staff meeting. And one of the things that I've always struggled with, and again, it's just an idol in my heart, I gotta deal with it. But I'm more of a dialogue person than a monologue person. Like when I preach, I want people to amen and respond and I've kind of let that go because it's never gonna happen. But uh, here's the thing. I remember being at a staff meeting and I, and I was telling the staff something. It was not about, it was like, I was telling them about the gospel. And, and, and you would think I was reading an obituary with how they were responding to what I was saying. And I got frustrated and I'm like, hey, if what I'm saying is encouraging you in any way, maybe you should tell your face. Just, just tell, like send the email up to your face and, and just let, it, let your face know that you're listening and hearing good news, right? And essentially what I was asking for without really realizing was I was asking for affirmation. I was asking for them to amen me and, and, and encourage me and affirm me, right? And it was funny because uh, Joe Erkovich, who he wasn't the uh, executive pastor that yet, I think that was the day that in my mind he became the, I know this guy's gonna be my exec pastor. I remember I said that and he looked like a dog. You know when a dog's confused? I said that and he was like. <laughs> that was his reaction. And I saw it and I'm like, oh, I'm not gonna look at him anymore. I'm gonna focus on, <laughs> I'm gonna focus over here. So the meeting ends and he comes up to me privately and he goes, hey man, what was that? And I'm like, what was what? You know, I'm playing dumb. And he goes, the whole, we got to amen you stuff. What was that? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, and I'm trying to justify myself, right? And he goes, dude, first of all, you got a bunch of white people on your staff. It ain't going to happen. Okay, that's first. <laughs> and he's like, but second of all, second of all, he's like, dude, who cares if they amen you or not? If you're giving them the word and the work, dude, your identity's in Jesus. Who cares what they think? Ooh, I remember in that moment, it was so hard to hear, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. And literally the very next staff meeting, I got up and apologized to the staff. 
And I said, I, that was from a place of insecurity. That was from a place of gospel amnesia. But it was Joe literally in a three-minute conversation reminding me of the gospel. Our lives, church, should be marked by that. That's what we see. Amen? <laughs> what can I say? I'm the chief of sinners, you know? I gotta... <laughs> so the third and final lesson that we learn here in this passage is we learn that Christ is our pardon, our power, and our purpose. Christ is our pardon, power, and purpose. And we see that in verses 19 through 20. Look what Paul says. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I would say that the principle lesson that we learn here in this final section is we learn that Christ is our pardon, our power, and our purpose. You see, Paul, he begins the section by saying that through the law, he died to the law. What, what the heck does that even mean, right? Here's what it means. According to scripture, there's only two ways to fulfill the law of God. You either fulfill it by obeying all its precepts in a positive sense, or you fulfill it by taking the full penalty of it in a negative sense. There's only two ways. Either I obey all of it, obey the precepts in a positive sense and get the blessings, or I take the full penalty of it in a negative sense and receive the curse. Those are the only two ways to fulfill God's law. What's beautiful though, is that in the gospel, our God fulfills the law at both levels for us. Because in the Old Testament, it says that he's not only the just one, he's also the justifier. In other words, he's not just the one who created the holy standard. He's the one who showed up and met the holy standard for us. In his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed all the precepts of the law and therefore earned the blessing. But in his death, he took the full penalty of the law and therefore received the curse. So Jesus in his life and in his death fulfills the law at both levels. In his life, he did all the law keeping and in his death, he died for all the law breaking. Listen to this. The maker of the law became a keeper of the law so that the breakers of the law can be treated as keepers of the law. I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> That's probably a note taker, by the way. The, uh, the, the, the maker of the law became a keeper of the law so that the breakers of the law might be treated as keepers of the law. That's good news, church. He lived the life we couldn't live. We, he died the death we should have died. Jesus was born under the law in order to carry the burden of the law so that we might get the blessings of the law. This is why union with Christ is so vital and essential to the life of a believer. 
Because when you place your faith in Christ, you are so united with him in a spiritual sense that when he died, you died. And because he lives, you live. He received our repercussions so that we might receive his reward. He received our judgment so that we might receive his justification. He received our punishment so that we might experience his peace. He received God's wrath so that we might receive God's love. And he experienced a cross of death so that we might be able to approach a throne of grace. I am so united with Christ if I'm a believer that not only did I die with him, but now I am seated with him at the right hand of the Father. And what I love about the phrase, they are crucified with Christ, it's aorist tense, but it's also in, uh, well, no, it's not aorist tense. It's actually perfect tense. And here's what the perfect tense means. The perfect tense in Greek is this very, very specific tense, which is a, means a past completed action that still has present results and implications today. That not only have I been crucified with Christ past tense, but that crucifixion still has implications for me right now and tomorrow and the day after that. That's what we see. Church, please don't ever underestimate. Don't ever lose sight of how truly all-encompassing, all-encompassing this gospel message is. We're going to talk about this more next week, but the reality is, is that the gospel should impact every aspect, every area of our lives. The gospel, Jesus, that's the lesson we learn here, Christ gives us pardon, purpose, and power. That's what we see. And here's what's beautiful about the fact that, yes, he gives us pardon because he, he uh, took the, the penalty of the law. He gives us pardon, but then he gives us purpose. And here's why he gives us purpose. Because Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith, I live, uh, the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. In other words, I now live for Christ. To, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what that means? That to live is Christ? Christ is your purpose. So Christ is either everything to you or he's nothing to you. There's no middle ground. He's either the anchor of your life or an afterthought in your life because he becomes your purpose. To live is Christ, Paul says. Christ lives in me now, Paul says. And that actually refers to his power too, that it's Christ and his power through me that is enabling me to go out. And what's funny is we're gonna talk about this more next week. So actually, I'm not even gonna get into it. The power is from Christ. The spirit of Christ has been given to us. And now we have the gospel, which is the very power of God up to salvation. We have the message of God, which is power. We have the spirit of God, which is also power. And we're gonna talk about this uh, uh, on Easter, Lord willing, that the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead now indwells us. But here's the thing. Yeah, we get pardon and yeah, we get power and yeah, we get purpose. But all those things only matter because they come from a person. Here's how we know that it's a person ultimately that we get a relationship with. It's a person who we ultimately are accepted by and approved by. Because in the text, it says, right at the end, he says that he loved us 
and gave himself for us. See, uh, uh, principles can't love you and give themselves for you. Uh, a paradigm can't love you and give himself for you. A proclamation can't love you and give themselves for you. So all these things are great, but they are only great because we are given a person and that person is someone who loved us and gave himself for us. And what I love about the word love here is that it's the Greek word agape. And we've talked about this. The, the Greek word agape is not like human love. It's not fickle and changing and shifting. It is a one-way, unconditional love. And what I love about that word agape, there's two things about the Greek word that really encouraged me this week. The first thing is that the word agape, it's love based on perceived value. We've talked about this. That agape love is not love based on actual value. Because if we were loved based on actual value, there would be nothing to love. But love, the, the agape love, is perceived value. That the reason why we are valuable is because God decided that we're valuable. The reason why we are worthy is because God has decided that we are worthy. The value of something comes from what someone is willing to pay for it. And he was willing to give his son for us. Love based on perceived value. So if you feel like, I, don't, I just don't feel like I'm lovable, you're not. Don't lie to yourself. You're not. None of us are. But it's love based on perceived value. God determines our price tag. And he paid it by giving us his son. Here's the other thing I love about the word love. Can I tell you? The other thing I love about the word loved is that it is in the aorist tense. So what that means is, is that Jesus always loved us. There was never a point where he did not love us. We are told in Ephesians that he loved us before the foundations of the earth. And so if he loved us then, that means he loved us when he was in the manger. And he loved us when he was on the mount. And he loved us when he was on the cross. And he loved us when he, when he was in the tomb. And he loves us now that he's on the throne. He always loved us, church. Come on. He always loved us. There was never a moment where he didn't love us. Past, present, future always loved us. And we know he loved us because he gave himself for us. And we've looked at this word before, but the word there to give is the Greek word paradidomai, to hand over, to give yourself over. And we've talked about the fact that it's the same Greek word that's used again and again in the crucifixion story, that Judas gave him over to the priest, paradidomai, and the priest gave him over to Pilate, paradidomai. And then Pilate gave him back to the Jews, paradidomai. But what's beautiful about it is that it might seem like Jesus had this, no power and he was helpless and he looked like a victim, but Jesus didn't come as a helpless victim. He came as a willing victor because it says that he was the one that did the paradidomai. He gave himself for us. He says in the gospels that no one can take my life from me, but I give it willingly so that I may take it up again. Paradidomai. He said he loved us and then he proved it by giving himself for us. In the gospel, only in the gospel, we have a savior who knows us fully yet loves us fully. And he proved it by giving himself fully. How many of us are still waiting for more evidence of God's love? According to Romans 5, God's love has already been displayed 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many of us are still waiting for another gift, more glory? Well, according to Hebrews 1, God's glory has been fully manifested in his son. So to summarize, justification is right standing. It's to be declared righteous. It's to be accepted. It's to be found pleasing. It's to have right standing in the eyes of God. And that standing, that acceptance, that approval isn't found in your career. It isn't found in your family. It isn't found in your looks or your health. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that person provides us pardon, purpose, and power. And he provides for us in redemption what we can never find in religion. Amen? Welcome to Church at Home. My name's Danielle, and this is Renee, and we also have Kristen moderating for us. So be sure to say hello. Um, She's there to chat with you. Also, we have this QR code right up here somewhere. If you can click on that, we would love to know your name and where you're watching from. Um, I was moderating last week, and it's so fun just to see where people are watching from so we can say hello. Um, great service this morning. So good to have Pastor Will back. And yes. we enjoyed Ambrose last week, but we're happy to see Pastor Will up there this morning. And it was such a good word um, from Galatians. So we're going to start out by rereading the scripture. It's Galatians 2, 15 through 21. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Wow. Such a sweet passage. I yes. love it. Yes. So, we're getting into our questions yes. this morning. Yes, let's see. So, in this passage, mm -hmm. we learned that the most basic need of humanity is justification. Right. Um, what is the biblical definition of justification, and why is it such a basic and primary need for all people? Mm-hmm. So justification, um, Pastor Will told us, is it means counted righteous. It's like a courtroom term. Um, so it would be the verdict of the judge declaring us righteous. And even my Bible down in the bottom, it says counted righteous. Mm. Um, so I loved how he gave the illustration that it is not the same as being declared innocent, which yes. means we never sinned. It means that we're, um, it's, it's like saying that we were always obedient. So I was thinking about um, 
it's like if you go down the wrong path, being declared innocent means you got brought back to the starting point. Like, nope, you never went down yes. the wrong path. But being declared righteous means not only did you not go down the right path, but now you get to be on the right path with Jesus. Like you actually went the right way. Yes. Um, and so it's such a basic and primary need for us because all of us want to be fully known and fully loved. And in that full knowledge to be accepted yes. and approved of. And, you know, that's why we're so afraid to be known and I loved know. by other people, other people and by God is because we think, well, yeah, if they really knew me, then they wouldn't love me or they would no longer accept me. And this is like, it's just a fear in all of us. And so that's why we all need this justification because to be fully known and loved by our creator yes, and accepted is, it's really just amazing. And knowing he already knows all, all of my ick. Yes. He knows all the thoughts in my head, the yes. desires of my heart, the whole mess. even those that don't align with his will. And he still says, because of me, yes. because of my work, I love you and you're accepted. Praise I mean, God. Wow. It's amazing. Yes. 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 But I know this is, <laughs> This will be something that we can kind of chew on here mm -hmm. for a minute. Um, what are the specific areas that you look to other than Jesus right. for that justification? Like, I know we, we all have our bent. Um, yes. But yeah. Let's, right. Let's so Pastor Will talked about <laughs> career, um, our social status. Um, I think for me, it would be more um, my temptation has been in my marriage, mm -hmm. if my marriage is going really well, or if I'm doing a good job parenting, yes. if my kids are turning out well, um, or maybe in my family of origin. Um, I think a lot of us get stuck in this place of wanting to find that approval, mm -hmm. which is natural um, from our parents or from our family family of origin. Um, and we think if I can get that, yes. then I'll be okay. Then I will be fully known and loved and mm -hmm. accepted. And so we can substitute those things. And the great thing about it is that Jesus understands all of those yes. needs and desires. And then he's the only one that can fulfill mm -hmm. it. What about you? Oh, for me, it's probably a tag team, um, between my career, um, it's, it's amazing when that switch was flipped for me of realizing that I was trying to find my justification and what I do for the mm. Lord, being on staff at a church, what I do for the Lord sure. and striving in that. Um, so I would say there's that. And then my parenting, yes. it's if my kid is... Well, acting like kids do, especially <laughs> out in public where other people can see. Right. I'm, you know, I would be, I would feel deep shame. Yes. You know, like, oh, I'm not doing a good enough job. Right. What do these people think of me? Oh, they must think I'm the worst person in the world, mm. especially if doing as us moms can sometimes do and we snap in public. <laughs> Pretty sure we've Never. all been there. <laughs> um, just having that. Um, as like this thermometer of, well, I messed up today. I yeah. didn't show my child the grace or love that he needed. Right. And therefore, I probably don't need that grace or love either. Mm. Um, yes. So being able to stand in Christ and Christ alone, it's so freeing. It is. That we yes. don't have to work Right. Um, that we don't have to constantly strive that mm -hmm. when we do mess up in his grace and mercy, he brings that to our attention yes. and, and lets us know that, Hey, this happened. Mm -hmm. 
because I love you, I'm not going to allow this to go unnoticed, right. but here, let's walk together through yes. this. And hopefully communicating that to our children. I was yes. saying to someone um, recently, you know, I think when we grow up, I grew up feeling like um, it was my job to keep the rules. And, um, you know, my parents expected me to be respectful and, and follow the rules and always be good. And I think it can be as parents, yes, we want to teach our children to, you know, know right yes. from wrong, but do we expect them to not be sinners when I'm a sinner? I make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so also wanting to teach them about grace and, yes. you know, about Jesus love and that we're all a mess. We're all sinners. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a mentor one time, um, Nathan was little. And I asked him to do something like three times. And I looked to her and I'm like, when does immediate obedience kick in? <laughs> and she, without a beat, responds, well, do you immediately obey everything your heavenly father asks of you? Ouch. And I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. This isn't about me. <laughs> it's about my child over here. But it is, it's, yes. it's, it's a gift Yes, um, to know It's a lesson both ways. It is, it is. <laughs> Nothing will show you that um, sanctification never ends or stops more than your child. <laughs> so true. Oh, okay. Um, in verses 17 and 18 and also verse 21, we learn that falling back into religion, mm -hmm. relying on the works of the law is both blasphemous and purposeless. But why is religion so offensive to God? Yes. I mean, mm. this is one of those that, that can hurt because yeah. I can very quickly fall in to the religious mindset. Sure. Like I'm an older brother through and through mm. um, when it comes to that mentality. And um, to hear that to fall back into religion makes the work of the cross just useless. Like right. that's what I'm saying when I mm -hmm. fall into that, that, that God's love and work is not enough that right. I have to add something from my sinful self to that mix. Right. It's, and when he said it's spitting in the face of Jesus, mm -hmm. when we fall into that, ouch. Yeah. So I think being able to keep that in my mind that to do this, to fall back into this, um, this way of thinking, mm -hmm. that old groove of thinking that um, I have to fulfill everything that God has asked me to do for His love, that it's making His cross useless. Yes. And it's anything but. Mm -hmm. It was so convicting. I wrote, it's, it's like saying, um, religion is like saying Jesus plus blank, mm -hmm. or even the blank before Jesus, um, how He pointed out that it's, taking sanctification and bringing it before our salvation. Mm -hmm. um, so it nullifies the death of Christ and, um, and saying that we didn't really, we don't really need that. Yeah. We can do it without him. Um, and so I do think certainly not pointing fingers at anyone, like mm -hmm. it is a temptation in our flesh to want to control. Yes. And, um, and instead of just submitting and saying, I, I don't, you don't need anything from me except my belief. Yes. Um, and so what grace is there in that is I, someone um, a few months ago, a 
someone that I know who was really seeking the Lord and asking all these questions, and she was not a believer yet. And then she came to that point and just said, okay, I know I need you, Jesus, but I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. And so what What? an amazing thing to be able to say nothing. Nothing. He doesn't need us to do anything. Um, And then the sanctification process comes after that, out of the love that we have for Jesus. So it's amazing that we don't need the religion, that we could get rid of that because the work, the law is never going to be enough. And so then to turn back to that, bind ourselves up with chains and say, yes. that's okay, Jesus. I don't need that. I've, I've got, got this. <laughs> right. That's right. why it's so offensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, what an amazing day today. The worship Such was amazing. Yes. The sermon yes. was very powerful. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining us mm-hmm. today to get involved or to more to get more information on how you can get connected. Um, you can go to missionchurchmemphis.com slash ministries. If you're in the area, guys, we'd love to have you yes. join us at one of our locations here in Memphis or at our Collierville location. Um, it's 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 there's nothing quite like being joining to, yeah, no. there's nothing quite yes. like being together with right. the body of Christ. Yes. Um, but if you're not in the area, let us know. We'd love to try to help you find a church local to where you are. Yeah. Um, we also have Holy Week coming up. Yeah, so so we're excited about that. We have communion on Thursday, April 6th. Um, so that's Communion Thursday. It's a come and go, come and go as right. you can. Both campuses. Between, yes, both campuses between the hours of five and seven. And then on Good Friday, it's at the Memphis location mm-hmm. campus only. Um, and that's um, April 7th. Again, the services are at five and at seven. And then we'll have our regular Easter services, yes. just our regular service times at both locations for Easter Sunday. So guys, thank you for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>